truth is a matter of the imagination. Truth is a matter of the imagination. Ursula K. Le Guin. I had the feeling like this last year, I mean, you talked about like how you also were more self-reflecting in this time. Mm -hmm. But um, maybe this is also a little bit a simple question, but why now even more than before? Maybe we're prepping. Who knows? Maybe, you know, everything about living in this world is about survivalism. Maybe in some strange way, we these are the survival manuals of the future. These are the tools that mm -hmm. we need. Potentially, yeah. I think it's great that, that people are turning to science fiction because we need that in a sense to like dream again, to try and understand how can we try and create now a counterculture within this framework of capitalism because it's, uh, I mean, it's necessary to act, but it's also necessary to know in which ways we can act. And um, it's great if science fiction can be one of the tools to allow us to dream and not always just be reading theory about what has happened and what will happen and what could happen, but also go into the science fiction realm and, and really dream and get a little bit more creative with, uh, with the possibilities. There's this book from Ian Cheng about the worlding of um, of um, ideas, and uh, I'd say that this is one of the qualities that science fiction does in a very in a very basic way. That's how science fiction functions. It builds a whole world, and now that I think about it, I think. That's what that was was lacking for me at least in the arts for the last years. So it's also like a, a therapy for the art field and for art production to be more close to science fiction, for example, because you have certain certain elements and certain ingredients, and by um, using them as well for the for the for the toolbox of of the arts enriches what art can do. These are the questions, like which are the conditions that we would have to cultivate in our society to be able to honor difference and to see difference as this like potential for, for generativity and creativity um, rather than always locked into these ideas of, okay, like suppressing difference as a way of like avoiding conflict. Because like we can't avoid conflict and conflict is also like a healthy positive, generative thing, potentially. Truth is a matter of the imagination. This podcast sits down to talk about science fiction with Lou Drago, Isabel Lewis, Anne Buti and Omsk Social Club. Four voices we got to know in the last year through our work at Chetale Zurich. We invited them for an exchange of thoughts about how sci-fi influenced our ways of thinking, dreaming, creating art and institutions, how it changed our perception of truth and fiction, the perception of dream time and world time, of structures and processes of change and collaboration. The tone of this podcast is tentative, probing, searching. The thoughts are developed together on the go, in process.
I mean, I think that there has been definitely a technological shift in our understanding of what was previously known to be science fiction that is now becoming more domesticated technology. For example, the of course, the smartphone is like something that's just as um, coherent as a knife and fork these days, you know. But then there is, of course, smart houses. There's also virtual reality, the way in which that's becoming like a lot more accessible and also how much we're like ingrained into these technological devices. But I think that this is... Um, is not the only... I think this is the very basic re reason why sci-fi has become so fundamentally part of our, I guess, exploration of our living times. I think the other is that cosmologically we've changed, like we're leaving one era and moving into the next, um, which from an astrological positioning that is much more of an enlightened state, more of an illuminated state of understanding uh, and moving beyond the mud and um, kind of the bronze age, so to speak. Um, so one could, one could say it's actually just a natural astrological change rather than any kind of like science fiction phenomena, I would say. Um, and I think the other thing is that I guess we we can agree we live in like a very accelerated world and maybe for the first time we're beginning to understand the political and engineering potential of fiction because, I mean, take the neuromancia. Silicon Valley is basically fan fiction made real of William Gibson's books that he typed on a typewriter. And like we can now for the first time, because it's also happening in a matter of decades, and I think that, well, I always have maybe an eternal optimism that art and culture has the potential to change the world. I think that normally it's very slow and I think that uh, normally we lose the thread of, of where this change occurred. Um, but I think that it occurs through this phenomena of appreciation and this understanding or want to take it on to the body. And I think that sci-fi has definitely led this like new advanced technological era from people basically wanting to live this cypherpunk reality. And they made it. But also, there was this little voice in my head saying, but things have to crash, have to break down. They didn't change enough yet. At New Year's, I pulled the tower in Tarot, a burning building, people falling out of the windows. Do all things have to break down violently so that we get it? Do we have to be shaken so hard to our core so that we absolutely have to change because there's no turning back? How will the downfall of patriarchy look like? How will the end of capitalism look like? 
the downfall of meritocracy, of white supremacy. Did you know that both adrenochrome and the idea of meritocracy originate from fiction books? Truth is a matter of the imagination. Yeah, but it's like being in a science fiction narrative. Like you're in a world and then a virus is inserted and then you can look at how different people and parts of the world are dealing with it mm. and it creates these effects that you wouldn't have thought of mm. and it affects just everything mm. and then you look at, yeah, it's like puzzling together this sci-fi mm. narrative but at the same time you're inside it and you and it really affects you and you're also wondering like okay so what is my character doing now yeah <laughs> what, is, what my, is my character doing what is my next step <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's also just that it's like the most slowly evolving um science fiction novel ever you know it's like i mean the film solaris i guess is like is this incredibly slow um i don't remember it at all so i would like to read the book because i probably fell asleep several times during the film <laughs> but that's like the pandemic you know it's like the slowest dystopian uh end of the world ever and if i'm to watch my character over the last year i would be so bored most of it is just like you know maintaining like the level of of uh, non-anxiety so to be functioning and it's not like the most exciting process for a character in a novel <sighs> someone said something really really clever and um <laughs> it was the the it was about the connection of the past present and future and then um i think it's it's from romania or something there's a saying like you stand you always stand looking at the past with the future in your back or something. And then we were like, you know, throwing ideas around and realizing that changing the perspective on the past will also change the future in your back because you're turning, you're, you're turning your head, you're turning to look and focus on different things. And by turning, you change what's in your back. So it somehow says, By changing your look at the past, you change your future. And I I don't know, that sentence really stuck in my head because um, it made me think about how museums, for example, look at their collection and and look at things that, that brought them to the, like institutions, for example, that brought them to the point of, of the now that they're currently in. And by changing on looking how they got there and by changing... The idea of, um, I mean, like, you know, like, um, yeah, giving uh, giving back artworks to 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 countries, for example, that that they shouldn't have taken in the first place, um, makes a different future. You don't just see the future in a different ways because science fiction is always speculate speculation in the in the future, but learning from from that future, I think you can. So like that would mean like looking at the things in your bag. <laughs> so you turn around, <laughs> look at that, and that makes the past, if you turn back to that, have changed as well. I think it's just you learn how to see differently if you if you really allow yourself to to go in a simulation that science fiction brings to 
to dive into that world makes you understand your world in a different way. Time has changed this last year. Time is confusing. It's not, it doesn't stay the same speed and breadth that it was. And I wonder whether science fiction just has this, well, firstly, it's timeless, right? That's, that is the crucial crux of it. And it's funny also when you see the dates and the dates are like 2021 and you're like, mm. but then you automatically like acknowledge that it was written in the 70s. So you actually read it in the view lens that is 2061, you know? And so you're like kind of constantly re-chattering the, the words in order to like engulf the narrative. So it's also that's remixing, right? You know, and... And I think that's also what science fiction allows for, and maybe also poetry, it allows for a certain sentiment of remixing. Sometimes you have to imagine in a radical way that makes you seem a little crazy, that puts you in an embarrassing light, in order to open up a possibility that others have already closed down with their knowing realism. I'm prepared to be mocked and dismissed for defending nonviolence in the way that I do. It might be understood as one of the most profoundly unrealistic positions you could hold in this life. But when I ask people whether they would want to live in a world in which no one takes that position, they say that that would be terrible. Judith Butler. They weren't going far enough or to go back to Judith Butler, they weren't radical enough because also just to thinking an idea from the beginning to the end has a kind of a radicality to it. To be like, to be this dedicated to an idea, to actually think like, okay, it's not just, not just a tiny bit of information, but actually a whole world and a whole system of, of what consequences and what interrelations between every part of that new thought world that would include and, and, and not. And I think that's what science fiction does in a very, um, in a very um, convincing way. So in order to have a story that works, that functions, that makes sense, and it doesn't kind of you know, end up um, with, with loose strings all over the place, and it would just be a shitty story, but to actually have that whole microsystem of, of sense somehow. I feel like people that are born in the 60s, the late 60s, or even like the early 70s, they still speak a lot about, like they were the ones that were like young adults in the 90s, like about like alternative culture was something. It had a, it had a kind of space, it had a kind of music, it had a kind of look, you know, and it, there were many expressions inside of what was alternative. Um, but it had uh, like this, this, this notion of alternative was something rather concrete. And I think like one would not be able to say that about the time that we live in. Like there is no outside because like all of us are connected to, you know, one of these devices that connects us to the internet and all over the world. So like, where is the space? And almost every subculture has been sort of like co-opted by um, the market and anything that is like, like this idea of like underground or alternative, there, there's no space for it, like since a while. And I think that is why for me, I think like that would be why like a, an attraction for um, 
visions of other worlds, fantasies of other worlds, like projections into future times or other times or like a, a world inhabited by other kinds of species. Like to me, it seems like a, that space of fiction and fantasy is still a place where you can actually, um, in a kind of non-cynical way, engage with the notion of alterity. Here, sit on the bench, relax, relax, yes, open up, yes, flow with me, relax, imagine the bars crumbling on the windows, the locks melting and running like thin soup to the floor. Imagine yourself taking everything apart, a board and a brick at a time. And then imagine yourself reusing them. Truth is a matter of the imagination. Sometimes the radical lies in just the small changes and like small changes of setup. And that's also what, what I found so intriguing of, um, of, I don't know, like what you, what you were doing with the program in Shedhalle, because it's, it's not like, okay, we're coming here and we're waltzing in and we're doing something completely different, but just having like, like small indicators changed and those small indicators of putting in the process rather than the result, for example, or to to just make it feel differently and and it, it it mixes up the whole thing all that you touch you change all that you change changes you the only lasting truth is change god is change octavia e butler parable of the sawyer I guess why I was so um, blown away by Parable of the Soul when I first read it was because that's like one of the uh, main themes underlying my radio show, Transience, is, well, in the title it says everything, <laughs> accepting the permanent state of, of impermanence um, and kind of leaning into that. Uh, so when I read this God has changed quote, I was really like, oh, wow, that's so beautiful that someone from a completely different context, another country, another um, era came to the same thoughts. Human beings fear difference. Lilith had told him once, Owen Kali crave difference. Humans persecute their different ones, yet they need them to give themselves definition and status. Owen Kali seek difference and collect it. They need it to keep themselves from stagnation and over-specialization. If you don't understand this, you will. You'll probably find both tendencies surfacing in your own behavior. And she put her hand on his hair. When you feel a conflict, try to go the Owen Kali way. Embrace difference. From Octavia E. Butler, Lilith's Brood. 
so different from our existence like their whole existence is around reproduction and around learning and exploring and playing in a sense whereas for us there's like almost a I don't know a, a, an incentive not to do that to like stick within your bubble to believe things that people who like you believe and to I mean in the conservative in the conservative system like capitalism doesn't really I mean, the only kind of difference that it desires is like ways to also um, increase profits, I guess. Like why there's diversity training. I mean, a friend was just telling me the other day that he did a diversity training in his corporate job. And it was it was basically like because, because these diverse opinions or like perspectives can end up inevitably making us more profit. <laughs> It's not like we want to employ diverse people because that's the right thing to do or because, you know, we see the failure of being an all, like, white cis male company, but but because, like, diversity is going to bring profit as opposed to Onkali who are not driven by any of these but yeah. out of a curiosity. I think, like, so much of um, what we're taught is to suppress difference because difference leads to conflict so what we can do at most like if I think of myself growing up like in the 90s it's like tolerate difference this was just like the slogan of my whole growing up tolerating difference and being colorblind so it's like let's not see difference so these were the two major slogans of the 90s identity like how politics was dealing with with difference to be blind to it and to, to tolerate it. And that just seems so fucking ungenerous. I mean, there's definitely been moments throughout the pandemic, even recently, that I feel like, um, I guess I've been frustrated with the, with difference a lot because of how different people are dealing with the situation differently and how, um, you know, how it's like you have to completely renavigate everything again and you have to try and understand, like, how other people relate to it, how, like, what this level of trust is, this level of communication, level of care and all of these kind of things. And I've also kind of been catching myself, I don't know, trying to be grateful of this difference and not kind of persecuting the fact that there's this thing that we now have to navigate and that people have different of, of opinions and different ways of dealing, but just, like, accepting, yeah, okay, we have different ways of dealing with it and... Some people need some things and some other people need other things and to try and not be judgmental. Mm -hmm. But there's like, I don't know, kind of a very recent, um, I don't know, self-lesson uh, self to try and see this difference as a positive thing. Because I guess in, in general, I'm already very much drawn and attracted to difference and probably why I like to travel so much and why I live now on the other side of the world from where I came from because I've always been exploring difference and interested in meeting new people but there's always a point where difference can be can be frustrating or <laughs> can be problematic being like a human but then offering yourself through fiction this like ability to be like outside slightly of being human or to see yourself as a human through another uh, fictional uh, subjectivity or something that feels really um, satisfying also to also even recognize like to me I, I remember something about like there's something like like these Onkali, like they think we're really cute and it's like because also like there's something there's some kind of like charm in our mad like 
human fatalistic existence or something where we're going to extinct ourselves and we're hierarchical and we're kind of, but we're also like, we're like, there's something about the species, right? There's some, something that they find attractive. And I remember something, and maybe it's, it's exactly that element of being this like nonsensical, actually totally like irrational thing, a thing that doesn't actually know how to care for its own flourishing, like, like other forms of life, like other biologies that like know how to care for their own flourishing that just do so. Like we're like the only species that kind of go, that actively works against its own uh, flourishing all the time. And maybe there's some kind of like weird charm inside of that and in some kind of, um, it's like, to me, it's, it's, I've been also looking at like a bit trickster stories and like all kinds of trickster myths from like West African myths to also like Greek myths. If you think of Prometheus, um, these yeah trickster figures that somehow, um, almost as though the, the choice, like the, as, as though humans basically choose their condition, like choose the condition of their own mortality. And in that choice, there's a kind of strength, there's a madness there's a craziness and irrationality, but there's also a kind of strength to say, even if the gods offer me immortality, I choose this human, fragile, mortal life and all of its like twists or something. After all, a person is herself and others. Relationships chisel the final shape of one's being. I am me and you. N.K. Jemisin, the fifth season. So I think it's also connected to to the idea of intuition, you yeah. Know, because you like you described that feeling or that 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 sensing of what be might be in your bag, what might be in the future, is something that I don't know. I think I think we are learning now to kind of trust that intuition or that that other ways of, of making sense a bit more than before. The only thing that makes life possible is permanent, intolerable uncertainty. Not knowing what comes next. Ursula K. Le Guin, The Left Hand of Darkness. Yeah, it would be amazing to somehow visualize... Um, I mean, that's the thing. It is visible in other places. It's just not so much in our backyards here mm -hmm. in, in, in Central Europe, maybe. I mean, but it, even it is, if you're looking for it, I mean, the, um, how hot summers are getting, for example, and there are changes happening. It's just that there are so many people that are unwilling to, to look at it. And, but I wonder, like, how we could visualize these, um, these changes happening. And I think that's also something we're talking about in in one of my book clubs recently it's like uh it was the book how to blow up a pipeline mm -hmm. um by mom my andrea's mom um and i was talking about like how to kind of capitalize on uh, moments of crisis um wherever they are in the world and to kind of really draw the correlation with climate um climate global warming to kind of really use these inflection points to to drum up a sudden awareness because otherwise you get kind of burnt out if it's like this constant work on, on global warming. But if you use a situation like, I don't know, a wildfire or a tsunami or whatever thing happens to then bring this attention. 
A tool always begs to be used. The trick is to learn how to use it. Nedi Okorafur Who fears death? It's not just result oriented. It's not like okay, we have to we have to change the world <laughs> and or the future. Um, but it's more like how do we Ooh, that sounds very cheesy if I say it. How do we change ourselves first? <laughs> and then some change will derive from that. Um, it's like the, I don't know, I, 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 I thought recently about that, that, that um, Audre Lorde quote with, uh, you can't dismantle the master's house with the tools of the master or something. Mm -hmm. And um, as a result from that, you have to say using new tools will also lead to something else. You know, it's not just like, okay, you, you, you can't do this, but in the next step, what, what can you do? And I think like relearning and rewiring um, the art from within and how it's done and how it's connected to 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 things that are already there and also to things how they might come and um so to the past the future it does change the present and um yeah so it 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 develops itself in order to well develop into something or to develop also other things for for a result <laughs> All struggles are essentially power struggles. Who will rule? Who will lead? Who will define, refine, confine, design? Who will dominate? All struggles are essentially power struggles. And most are no more intellectual than two rams knocking their heads together. Octavia E. Butler, Parable of the Sawyer. So maybe in that sense, like science fiction doesn't claim to understand, yeah. but is kind of conscious of its own um, of its own version of fiction or yeah. truth, and um, and starts asking questions in that. Yeah, sense. it decentralizes the idea of knowledge. Basically, I just ramble for like five minutes, <laughs> but actually, could have just said it in two words. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that knowledge does need to be decentralized because I think that there is something strong like power of course it's like a dirty word but power is also like part of empower right and I think this decentralization of power and knowledge will then actually empower like new alternative models of thinking and imagination And at the end of the day, what I think is also very interesting in tropes of science fiction, it's very often a micro community rather than a macro community. There is not like always the dystopic is the universal, the globalization is the dystopic, whereas these micro unity of communities are always the ones that strive forward and make change. And I think that 
if it really ends up that like really the best thing that we have to do is to splinter and cut up this world into many micro communities with where the resources are funneled to the user, the user understands how to use it dependent on that micro community, then maybe this is really like actually uh, one might even say this is kind of anarcho-primitivist in its idea of understanding society to break back into tribes and into these tiny structures. Um, but I think we gave, you know, globalization a good shot and it's not really working. Um, <laughs> like, um, so maybe, you know, <laughs> really try to go with that fiction. Yes. <laughs> but now it's time for others. Yeah. Now it's time for experimenting True. with so many other things. Exactly. I mean, fuck neoliberal. They've been the narrators for too long. Yeah. Like, we need a new storyteller. Like, many, many new yes, storytellers. True. Yes, there should not be, there never should be one storyteller because no. nobody will, yeah. will always want to listen to the same one. Yeah, that also leads back or can be can be connected back to the idea of what kind of science fictions are currently interesting. And these are not the the big war fighting spaceship destruction kind of um, fictions, but yeah, more like the the connected nature, calm, collective. Um, making new bounds and, and connecting species and, and these kinds of fictions. Can you just close your eyes for a moment? Can you do that for me? Yes. And now with closed eyes, just imagine as clearly as possible the world how you truly want it to be. Create a clear image in your mind. Don't open your eyes yet. When you will open your eyes, the world will be exactly like you imagined it to be. Don't open them yet. Take a breath. Get ready for that moment. The moment when you open your eyes and the world will be exactly like you imagined it to be. Yes, yes it will be. Are you ready? I will count down from three and then you open your eyes. Three, two, one, open your eyes. Truth is a matter of the imagination. 